Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Last week, I introduced you to the idea of an unconditional covenant, and we compared that to conditional covenants. When we ended last week, we were looking at the Abrahamic covenant, and I was attempting to stress that it was an unconditional covenant. And what I mean by that is that it was a covenant that God made by himself, with himself, unilaterally, There were no other participants in the covenant making. He made the covenant, struck the covenant all by himself, and he didn't place any conditions on Abraham. He didn't at any point say, Abraham, I will keep this covenant that I've made with you, provided you always do thus and so. Instead, what God said was, I'm going to do this because I'm God, and I'm going to do it. And your descendants are going to be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heavens. And I said to you, that's a very physical promise. There's going to be earthly, physical, historic descendants who are going to flow out of Abraham. And then he gave him a land promise and said that you're going to possess all this land, every place that your foot has touched, everywhere that your eye has seen, all of this land belongs to you and your descendants in perpetuity, everlastingly, that is yours. All the way down to the Nile River, all the way out to the Euphrates, all that land that Israel has not yet obtained, all of that land, God says, belongs to Abraham and his descendants. Okay, now that is a very literal, physical promise. That's even a geographic promise. That's how literal and physical it is. But then God also says, through you and through your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's a very spiritual promise. So what we need to understand about the Abrahamic covenant is that, number one, it has no conditions. God is just simply going to do it based on the faithfulness of God to his own word and God to his own character, nature, and promises. He is going to do it. He has to do it. Otherwise, God is not God. Otherwise, God isn't true. He's not honest. Otherwise, God is capricious, and you can't put your faith in him because he changes his mind. So he has to keep every word of his unconditional promise, And that unconditional promise includes both physical aspects and spiritual aspects. Everybody okay so far? Yes. Because where we're going to pick up today is in Genesis 48. And we're going to start talking about the division of the physical and spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this is something that if you get wrong, it will lead to all kinds of theological confusion as you go forward in developing your theology and understanding what it is that you believe. 
You'll get confused if you don't understand this division of the Abrahamic covenant. However, it is a division that's right there in the text. It's very plain. I'm going to read it to you a couple of times. A couple of different Old Testament writers wrote about it. It was a well-known aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Every thoroughgoing Jew understood this, but the modern Christian church doesn't seem to understand it. Now, what I showed you last week, again, as we read through the early chapters of Genesis, was how the Abrahamic covenant was given originally to Abraham, but then it was given to Isaac. In Isaac, thy seed shall be called. And the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were given to Isaac by God himself. And then they moved from there to Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, And Jacob had the Abrahamic covenant, every aspect of it, both the physical aspects and the spiritual aspects of it, all of that moved from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And we showed you that last week as we looked at the way that God carried that promise forward through generations of Abraham's descendants. God told Abraham when Abraham asked, how will I know? that you're really going to give me this land? How will I know that I'm going to have these numerous descendants? How will I know? And in response, God not only formed the covenant that is without condition, but he also told him the next 400 years of the future history of his own descendants and said, you're going to go into a land where you're not known. There you're going to serve There you're going to be for 400 years. I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. You're going to come out with more substance than you went in with. All of that is part of the answer to the question, how will I know? So God answered the question by saying, this is how human history is going to occur because I am sovereign. I'm in charge of human history. And when it occurs and when I bring your descendants back to this very land, that is the sure guarantee that answers your question, that this land does belong to you because I'm going to show you my power through the next 400 years of your descendants. So when your descendants come back to this land, they ought to know for certain that Yahweh is the one that brought you through all this. Okay, so they end up in Egypt, just like God said. They got there through Joseph. Joseph, who his brothers hated sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And then ultimately, God brings a famine to the Middle East, a famine so bad that all the food in Israel has run out, but they understand that there's still food in Egypt. The only reason there's still food in Egypt is because Joseph understood Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh's dream was that there were seven fat cows that came up out of the Nile, and then there were seven lean cows that came up out of the Nile, and the seven lean cows ate the seven fat cows, and he had no idea what that meant. And Joseph said, that means that we've got seven years of bumper crops on the way. We've got seven years of plenty. We've got seven years to harvest as much stuff as we can harvest, and then we're going to have seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh realizes that this is a man of wisdom and puts him in charge And by the time Joseph gets done, everybody in Egypt 
has pretty much sold everything they own to Pharaoh in exchange for food because Pharaoh has been loading up food for seven years. In the end, they end up selling themselves, giving themselves to Pharaoh in exchange for food. So Joseph's brothers hear that there's food in Egypt. So they come to Egypt, and who do they have to see? They have to see Joseph, the brother who they hated. Once Joseph reveals himself to them, they're afraid that he is now going to punish them for their chicanery, for their hatred, for the way that they've sold him into slavery. And instead, he says that very well-known phrase, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result that many people are saved alive. And so Joseph saw through their evil and saw that God nevertheless brought about a good result in making Joseph second only to Pharaoh, and now his brothers have to come to him, and Joseph gives them the food that they've come there for, and then says, go get my father, bring him to me. Jacob comes, sees Joseph. Joseph has always been his preferred son. He's the one who got the multicolored coat to wear. He has always preferred him because he was the firstborn son of his beloved Rachel. Even though Leah had given him sons, and even though Rachel's servant and Leah's servant had given him sons, finally Rachel's barren womb was opened and she produced a son, and that became the favorite boy, which is why the other brothers all hated him. Okay, so now Israel, Jacob, gets to Egypt, and it's time to hand out the birthright blessing because he's now old. He can barely see. He's leaning on his staff, not unlike Jeff this morning. (laughs) He's leaning on his staff, and it's time to hand out the birthright blessing. Okay, the birthright blessing is the physical accumulation of everything the father has. It's supposed to go to the oldest son, who would be Reuben. It's supposed to be the birthright to the firstborn son. But as we're going to read in a moment, Reuben didn't get that blessing because he had defiled his father's bed. And so who gets the birthright blessing? Joseph, the favorite son. Now, while Joseph is living in Egypt, he's taken an Egyptian wife. And he has had two children, two sons with the Egyptian wife. And so Jacob says, bring me those boys. And he's going to give the birthright blessing to those boys. Okay, that's where we're at right now when we get to chapter 48 of the book of Genesis. Starting at verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous And I will make you a company of people, 
and I will give you this land for your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Okay, what is that? That's the Abrahamic covenant. Those are all the essential promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So he said, God has appeared to me and given me that covenant that belonged at first to my grandfather. And now, verse 5 says, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours and they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. In other words, he's saying, even though the two boys were born in Egypt, they belong to Israel. They belong to me. And their descendants after them are going to be Israelites. They are going to belong to me and to my heritage and to the heritage of Abraham before you. They are Israelites. They are not Egyptians. Now, as for me, says verse 7, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, so that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. So then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh, who was the eldest, with his left hand to Israel's right, and brought them close to him. So what has he just done? Joseph very wittingly has made sure that his eldest son is at the right hand of his father because his father is dying and is about to hand out the birthright blessing. And who should get the birthright blessing? The oldest son. So he made sure that Manasseh was at his right hand. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand he placed on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head over to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know he shall become a great people, and he also will be great. However, this younger brother shall be greater than him, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, My God make you like Ephraim and like Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Where did he get that confidence? You're here in Egypt. You're second only to Pharaoh. Your brothers are all here in Egypt. Your people are all here in Egypt. And he just said to him, and God's going to take you back to your land. Where did he get that confidence? Because the Abrahamic covenant promised it. And because he was now the bearer of the Abrahamic covenant, he could say with great confidence, it's been 400 years. And the promise of God is that he is going to bring you back to the land. So before I die, I'm here to tell you that God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you, Joseph, one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. In other words, since you have two sons who are going to constitute two tribes, I'm going to give you an extra portion of land. Okay, so now we've seen the Abrahamic covenant move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to Ephraim. Very specific, Ephraim now has the right of the firstborn, which means all that the father owns, all that Jacob had, everything he had been promised, all now belongs to Ephraim. That is one of the reasons that when we talk about the northern and the southern tribes and the nicknames that have been given to them over the years, one of the nicknames for the northern tribes is Ephraim. Sometimes they're referred to as Mount Ephraim. Because Ephraim became the chief tribe of the northern ten tribes, just like Jacob predicted over him. But even though the physicality of the Abrahamic covenant now belongs to Ephraim, starting in Genesis 49, right at verse 1, we read, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves so that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. The scepter, what is the scepter? Rulership. Rulership. That's the whole point of a scepter. What are we really talking about here? We're talking about the kingdom. This is what we've been talking about for two weeks. Where does the kingdom go? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's one of the reasons that Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because he is specifically a Judahite. 
because he is from the tribe of Judah, when he was born, Jesus accurately fulfilled this prophecy from Israel himself, who said that the scepter, law-giving, the right to rule, was going to come from Judah, even though the land promise, the physicality of the promise, belonged to Ephraim. And so for the first time, you start seeing this division between the spiritual and the physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to your father Israel. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The nations, the nations of the earth that are going to be blessed, they're all going to be ultimately obedient to a descendant of Judah, not a descendant of Ephraim. Now that division of the Abrahamic covenant between the physical promises and the spiritual promises was so well known that in First Chronicles, in writing about the various families of Israel and the lineages and the genealogies, we read this in First Chronicles 5, starting at verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So you've got Jacob Israel, his son Joseph, and it is the sons of Joseph who received the birthright blessing, which we just read. But in the Chronicles, it's spelled out very clearly. The birthright belongs to Ephraim, to the sons of Joseph, who is the son of Israel, so that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Now, we don't know what it is he did when he defiled his father's bed, but apparently it was bad enough that he lost his birthright blessing over it. He lost his place in the genealogy and in the role of the firstborn. So it had to be pretty bad. But what we know for certain is that birthright blessing then went to the sons of Israel. Verse 2 tells us, but Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from Judah will come the leader. But the birthright belongs to Joseph. It couldn't be any clearer. It's very, very specific if you just read what it says. It says that the physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, the birthright blessing, the land promise, everything his father owned, all went to Ephraim. But through Judah, the leader, the lawgiver, the ruler is going to come through Judah. Now, when we look back at history and we see Jesus coming through the tribe of Judah, who is the Messiah, who is the ultimate king, we can say that that part of this prophecy has absolutely been fulfilled. Absolutely. So then is there any question, is there any doubt who the birthright blessing currently belongs to? It belongs to Ephraim. It belongs to the northern ten tribes. And what that means is 
you don't really have a reconstitution of Israel until you have the northern ten tribes because they're the ones that have the birthright blessing. That's right. Get it? Got it. 1948 was great. Reestablishment of Israel as a nation, great. All for it. After World War II and the indignities they suffered, great. They ought to be a nation again. But that's not the regathering of all 12 tribes of Israel. The promise is 12 tribes of Israel have to be regathered in order for there to be a physical kingdom belonging to Israel. Okay, so now that's the Abrahamic covenant, and it would be easy to start thinking, yeah, but a whole lot of years have passed since then, and the new covenant has come into being. By the way, the new covenant, also an unconditional covenant, which is really good news. It's good news to know that the new covenant is based on the character and nature and promises of God and not based on anything within you. The same way that Abraham couldn't abrogate the unconditional covenant that God put him in. You can't abrogate the unconditional covenant that you've been put in, which is really good because if you're anything like me, you've tried. You know that you have not lived up. If he had put even one condition on it, you would have failed, and then you'd been out of the covenant. So it's good to know that the new covenant is also an unconditional covenant. But what about the Abrahamic covenant? What about that? Is it still ongoing? Is it still in existence? Is it still living and active today? Well, according to Paul, in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, he addresses that very subject. Or else I wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> Galatians 3, starting at verse 17. Galatians 3, starting at verse 17. What I am saying is this. In other words, Paul's been building up to this point. He's been talking about the law. He's been talking about salvation by grace through faith versus law-keeping to accomplish personal justification. What I'm saying in summary is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Let's go through that piece by piece because those words are very important. The law came 430 years after what? What was 430 years before the law? The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant included the promise that your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and they're going to serve there for 400 years. They're going to be brought back to this very land. So Paul says the law, which came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, did not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God. Notice there the unanimity of that. He did not say that covenant was ratified by God and Abraham. Abraham did his part. God did his part. He understands that it's an unconditional covenant. Paul understands that there are no conditions on the covenant. And since there are no conditions, nobody could break that covenant. And it's an everlasting covenant. So just because the law was put into place for Israel, and then the law was fulfilled in the finished work of Christ, 
The fact that the law came and effectively went doesn't change the ongoing, unchanging nature of the unconditional covenant made to Abraham. Here, we'll read it again because I sort of elongated what Paul said, hopefully for clarity. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise. What is the Abrahamic promise? Blessings for all the nations and families of the earth and the land promise. Those are both equally part of the Abrahamic covenant, both based on promises that God made unconditionally. So Paul says the law coming and going does not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is still good. Then listen to the argument. For if the inheritance, what inheritance? The land inheritance. Because he's just talked about the promise. And any thoroughgoing Jew knows what the promise is that's intrinsic to the Abrahamic covenant. The land promise. That belongs to who? It belongs to Ephraim. And it's still a good promise. For if the inheritance was based on the law, then it's no longer based on a promise. And Paul's theology of law versus grace is always this idea of grace being based on the unconditional promise of God versus the law that can only condemn you. All the law can do is demonstrate how sinful you are. Salvation has to be by grace through the promise of God. So he's always contrasting this idea of law versus promise. And if the inheritance for Israel, who apparently, at this moment in time when Paul was writing, as the Gentiles were coming in, there was this growing feeling that God was done with Israel. Does that sound familiar? Because you can find that in the church world today. That God has written off Israel. God is done with Israel. God has divorced Israel. God has killed off Israel. God is done with Israel. Okay, not according to what Paul is saying here. Because he said, if the inheritance that belongs to Israel, that belongs specifically to Ephraim, the inheritance, if it were based on the law, then it wouldn't be based on promise. Because it can't be law and promise. It has to be one or the other. It has to be law or grace. It can't be both. So if it is based on a promise, which we know it is, it's based on the promise of God by himself unconditionally, that's based on a promise, and it can't be based on the behavior because it's an unconditional promise. Are you following me? For if the inheritance was based on the law, then it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham. Now we know exactly what we're talking about. There's no question about it. But God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. 
So because it's a promise from God, an unconditional promise from God, because it's a covenant that God made with God, because he made that promise unilaterally, the fact that the law came and demonstrated how guilty, how sinful Israel was, so that it would act as a schoolmaster to lead them to their Messiah, to their Savior, the fact that the law was implemented and then satisfied and fulfilled in Christ, none of that does away with the unconditional promise made to Abraham. That means all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the Gentile nations are indeed going to be blessed as a result of the promise that God made to Abraham. Has that happened? Yeah, because you're a Gentile and you're believing in the Jewish Messiah. That means that God has kept the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham way back there. But he utterly, completely, totally scrubbed the land promise thing. <laughs> of course that's wrong. Instead, the land promise just hasn't been satisfied yet. But I would contend, based on the fact that Jacob said that the ruler, the one with the scepter, was going to come out of Judah... And indeed he did, then it's equally true, equally valid, equally provable on the basis of God's faithfulness to his own word that the land promise still belongs to Ephraim. Right? right. Because that's what the Bible says. And that's also what Paul says in the New Testament. Okay, so Jacob had 12 sons who became the progenitors of the 12 tribes of national Israel. Through Joseph, just like God told Abraham, the family wound up in Egypt after a pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph and the large and growing offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were placed into bondage and they served there for 400 years and the assignment of Moses was to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Canaan and after 40 years in the wilderness it wasn't Moses who led them in it was Joshua who I think is a very clear very obvious type of Christ who led them into the promises of God who led them back into their promised land for a while they were ruled over by a series of judges. That's why the book of Judges exists. And so whenever they had quarrels with each other, whenever they needed to have things adjudicated, they would go to the judges. The judges led the nation. The judges fought for the nation. They were always responsible for the law of God within the land of Israel. That wasn't good enough for Israel. They didn't like that whole theocracy thing. They didn't like that whole thing where we live according to a law that came down from Mount Sinai that Moses said came from God. I'll tell you what we want. We want a king. Because the surrounding nations, the Gentile nations, the ones that keep encroaching on our land that we have to go fight with, they have a king. Each of them have a king. And in fact, their kings lead them in battle. Stir them up. We want a king. And so they went to Samuel and said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And he's going to be a ruinous king. And he's going to take the best of everything you have. And he's going to tax you heavenly. Heavenly? 
Whew. I wish taxes were heavenly. He's going to tax you heavily. And so he gave him King Saul. Part of the reason that they liked King Saul so much was because he was a head taller than everybody else. And so that made him a statuesque kind of king. And so he would lead Israel in their battles, and they liked King Saul. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 13 now for anybody who would like to catch up with us. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul, being a ruinous king, also didn't know how to keep his place. So in 1 Samuel 13, starting at verse 13, we read, So Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would now have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Notice that that means that the kingship of Saul was utterly conditional. It's conditioned on you keep the law. It's conditioned on you lead Israel according to the dictates of my law. And when Saul started breaking the law, Samuel comes to him and says, had you kept the law, had you been a good king, God would have established your throne over Israel in perpetuity. He would have continued it forever. But because you broke the law, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, according to Acts 13.22, that man after God's own heart was King David. We all know that. What we read in Acts 13.22 was, and after he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king. Concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So there's no question who the man after God's own heart is. He is identified biblically as King David. Now, one of the things that King David wanted to do while he was living in his magnificent house of cedar, when he saw the ark of God in a tent still, he thought that that was unfair. Why do I live in this magnificent house while the ark of God is still living in a tent? And so he intended to build a temple for God so that his ark could exist in a magnificent temple. He felt that's what God deserved. So he went to uh, Samuel. No, he went to Nathan. He went to Nathan the prophet. And he said, this is what I'm planning to do. And Nathan, without going to check with God, says, whatever's in your heart, do it. And then God has to interrupt Nathan and say, I didn't say that. What are you doing? And that takes us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 4. But in that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Have I ever said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following after the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. In other words, I did all that for you. You were a shepherd, you were a nobody, and I made you king of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly or like they used to. Okay, is that a firm promise from God, by the way? Yes. I'm going to plant the children of Israel. The children of Israel are all 12 tribes at that moment. David ruled over all 12 tribes of Israel. And so when God says, I will take my people Israel, I will give them a place, I will plant them, they will live there in their own place and they're not going to be disturbed again and the wicked are not going to afflict them the way they used to. Has that happened yet? No. No. Is Iran still existing to this day? Still rattling sabers and claiming they're going to blow Israel off the map? Well, then it doesn't sound like this promise is quite fulfilled yet. And yet God promised it through David that he was going to do it because he has made an unconditional promise to Abraham that that land belongs to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes and their descendants in perpetuity. That's their land. And again, God brings it up and says, I'm going to take them back to that land and I'm going to plant them in that land. And their enemies are not going to disturb them in that land. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then the Lord also declares to you, that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, this is interesting language. you got to pay attention to it because we still use the word house similarly today. We just don't give it any thought because we all here in America, we live in houses, brick houses, stone houses, wood houses. We live in houses. So when we see the word house, that's what we think of. But Queen Elizabeth over in England right now is actually part of a house, a dynasty, and she is referred to as the descendant of the House of Windsor. Just like Henry VIII was from the House of Tudor. And so there are these various houses, and those are references to dynasties, successions of kings one after another. Those are a house. That is the language that God uses here very cleverly and says, 
you wanted to build a house for me, and you meant physical structure. I'm going to build a house for you, and he's about to describe it, and what he's going to describe is a dynasty. He can't be describing a physical house. He's not saying, David, I'm going to build you a shack. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise a structure for you to live in. David already has a house of cedar. Instead, what he's saying is, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. By the way, I just have to throw this in just for fun, because the details are fun. When God is speaking this promise, he knows which descendant it is that is going to end up on the throne. He knows who it's going to be. It's going to be Solomon. How did Solomon come into being? Through Bathsheba. This is another example of God entering into terrible circumstances. I mean, David was responsible for killing Bathsheba's husband. Because she winds up pregnant. Okay, so God kills that firstborn son. It's the secondborn son of David and Bathsheba that is Solomon that becomes the king. And God knows all that when he makes his promise. Which means, by the way, that God can make you these kind of glorious promises despite the fact that he knows you're a wicked sinner. Despite the fact that he knows what you're going to do and what you're going to be like, he can still give you these kind of glorious promises. Isn't that good to know? Yeah, that's that whole unconditionality thing that I like so much. When your days are complete, you're going to lay down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, which, by the way, actually happens. Solomon is responsible for building the temple, but then the language changes from not just temple, but to dynasty. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever and in accordance with all these words and all this vision so Nathan did speak to David okay so what is that promise first off is there a condition in that promise anywhere no David I will sustain your throne if you if God had said I will sustain your throne if you keep my law well then David immediately broke the law when he took Bathsheba So there it is, end of dynasty. God knows the law-breaking is coming. And that's why he makes an unconditional promise with David and promises him that his throne is going to endure forever. It's going to be established forever. I heard a preacher once, gosh, 30 years ago, say that the word forever has a different meaning in the Old Testament than it has in the New Testament. Because he didn't know how to deal with these kind of promises. I mean, he liked the idea that we had forever promises. 
He liked the idea that when Jesus saved us, he saved us forever. Yeah, that's good. But if God made promises to David that are forever, he didn't know how to deal with that. So he ended up trying to convince us that the word forever had a different meaning in the Old Testament. Except you go back and you read those Hebrew words, and they all mean the same thing. They mean without end. That's pretty forever in my book. And I have a book. Oh, never. Okay, so now in 1 Chronicles 17, that same promise that we just read from the mouth of Nathan is repeated yet again. The Chronicles, very important, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, are the histories of the various kings of the northern and the southern tribes. And so there are genealogies in those books. There are promises in those books so that we understand the succession of various kings and how God dealt with them. And 1 Chronicles 17 repeats that promise. 1 Chronicles 17, starting at verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, then I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from the one who was before you. That's a reference to King Saul. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Okay, now that language is obviously messianic. That language is obviously leaping past Solomon, who did in fact build a temple, who in fact is the descendant of David whom God loved. But God also, as a result of Solomon loving many strange women, many foreign women and chasing after these foreign gods, God also said, well, then I'm going to take the kingdom away from your son and the ten northern tribes are going to go follow a different king. But I'm still, for your father David's sake, going to leave you Judah and Benjamin. So you're going to get two of the tribes and you're going to end up with the Levites that serve in the temple in that area. But the northern ten tribes are going to abandon you because of the way you have rebelled against my law. So he can't be strictly saying these words and these promises to Solomon. He's speaking past Solomon because Solomon didn't live forever. Solomon's throne didn't exist forever. But there's these messianic promises. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. I think we would all agree that if we're talking about the throne of Christ, we would have to say that's a forever throne based on a forever promise made unconditionally by a forever God that is all eternality. Right? Okay, so hang on to that idea. Hang on to that concept that there is going to be this everlasting nature to David's throne. Because I will jump forward and tell you, at the day of the triumphal entry, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, there was not only this great messianic fervor going on in Jerusalem, but there was also this sense that he's the Messiah, 
He's our king. He's the descendant of David. And so the people, when they're throwing their palm branches and their robes into the street as he rides in on the donkey that had never been ridden on before, they're crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Why son of David? Because he's that king to come. He's the one that's coming who's going to establish the kingdom. And if he's establishing the kingdom that all the prophets have promised us, which we haven't looked at yet, hopefully next week we're going to read just what the prophets have all said about this kingdom that belongs to Israel that absolutely has to happen. Well, in the first century when Jesus was on the planet and they saw him as the Messiah and as the son of David, they thought, that's it. Kingdom's here. He's going to establish us, plant us on our own land. All those promises are going to come true. He's going to give us safety from all our enemies. And all the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. This is it. And in fact, at one point, they even took him and tried to make him king by force. We're just going to make you king. Okay, so that's, that's jumping forward a bit. But what I want you to see is the connection between the unconditional promise made to King David and Jesus coming as the son of David and the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because all of these promises and all of these prophecies find their satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ, which is why we read in him, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Amen means verily, verily, it will be so. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. It's part of the reason that Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I didn't come to do away with the prophets. I didn't come here to erase what the prophets have already said. He said, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Okay, so all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. In him, they are all being fulfilled. And so far, there's nothing in the Bible and nothing in human history that can negate the unconditional promises that God has made to Abraham and now to David. That lineage, that promise, that kingdom, that throne has to exist in an everlasting capacity, in an everlasting kingdom over 12 tribes of Israel. Have I made anything up yet? Okay. Because I might later. So, you know. So, yeah. So, let me know. Yeah. Look up Matthew 19, 28 for a moment, if you would, Tom. I've written that in my notes. And at the moment, have no idea why. But. So, unless we can find the 12 tribes of Israel living in their ancient promised homeland, ruled over by a descendant of David then we can't say that those promises are fulfilled. And yet they are unconditional promises that even Paul says aren't done away with. They're still good promises. Or even if you just have Israel having rest from their enemies, that's still not the fulfillment of it because Jesus said that he was going to be sitting on the throne and he was going to be ruling from Jerusalem. You have to have all those elements in order to have the satisfaction of those promises. Now, 
There are people who will tell you that the satisfaction of those promises is that Jesus is currently sitting on a throne at the right hand of God, which they will then make the illogical sub-biblical leap and say that throne in heaven is David's throne. And so the descendant of David is sitting on David's throne everlastingly, therefore satisfying the unconditional Davidic covenant. The problem is, that can't be David's throne in heaven. David never ruled in heaven. David ruled in Israel over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. For that dynasty, specifically, that's why this house language is so important, for that dynasty to have continuation, it has to have continuation in that land, on that throne, over those people. It has always been historically that specific and accurate. There's no reason to think that now suddenly it's a jump ball. Instead, it has to be Christ sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling 12 tribes of Israel. And while I was talking, I just remembered why I'm going to have Tom read this verse to you. Because when Jesus was on the planet, he said this, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel? <laughs> the 10 northern tribes are scattered. They're known as the lost sheep of Israel, which is why Jesus would say, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Very specific, of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, that's who he sent to. And then he says, in the regeneration, in the new world to come, when I'm sitting on my glorious throne, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus said that. Should we believe him? Yes. I would say we're going to have to believe him, which means that at some point the 12 tribes of Israel have to be regathered as a nation, as a kingdom, so that they can have 12 judges over them. Why are they going to sit on 12 thrones being judges? Because Jesus is the ultimate king and prince. They can't be kings and princes, but they can be judges just like the book of Judges was all about, which God was content with. Human judges among Israel, I'm your king. The ultimate satisfaction of all that is going to be Jesus is king, but there's some judges. And the judges are going to be the 12 apostles who stayed with him through his ministry. And they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging specifically the 12 tribes of Israel. That means there has to be a regathering of Israel. Am I boring you? No. Okay. Yeah, this is so fun. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm sad your father didn't say it. <laughs> David was the only faithful king of Israel who ever ruled over the United Twelve Tribes. During the reign of Solomon, due to his love of foreign women, like I mentioned, you can read about it in 1 Kings 11, God then separated the northern ten tribes when Solomon's son came to the throne. So Israel was split between the northern and the southern kingdom. And then they took on a variety of nicknames, as I mentioned earlier. This, the southern kingdom was known alternately as Judah and Benjamin and the Levites of the people. They were known collectively as the house of Judah. 
Sometimes they were collectively called Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom became known as the house of Israel. Whenever you see that language, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know you're talking about the ten northern tribes. Or sometimes, as I mentioned, they're called the house of Ephraim or Mount Ephraim. And sometimes they're referred to as Samaria. Whenever you see that language in the Bible, you know that you're talking about the ten northern tribes. And then there was a series of invasions and deportations that they underwent. This should all sound familiar to you now, and you will suddenly understand the method to my madness and why we spent a couple of weeks talking about Daniel. Because what happened historically to Israel was that the northern ten tribes were then taken into bondage into Assyria. They have never since occupied the land that is theirs in perpetuity. You get that? Ever since the Assyrian captivity, they have not lived in the land that God said, I'm going to bring you back to. I'm going to set you up in that land. I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. I'm going to put you in that land. But they haven't been there since the Assyrian captivity. Then the Babylonians come along and conquer Jerusalem, and they take the southern tribes into captivity for 70 years. The Babylonians are beat up by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians, Cyrus specifically named by name by Isaiah in 150 years in advance. Cyrus is the king that allows them to go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild the walls and rebuild Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem has to exist. Why? Because the tribe of Judah has to exist. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has to appear in Judah in Jerusalem. So we know that. And so Jerusalem can't be wiped out the way the northern ten tribes were. And then along come the Greeks and the Romans, and you know all that from what we studied a couple weeks ago in Daniel. But despite that situation, despite the fact that the northern tribes have been taken out of their land and have not returned ever since, despite the fact that the Jews have been the diaspora, they've been scattered all over the planet, There's virtually nowhere you can go where you can't find a community of Jewish people. They're not back in their homeland solely and completely. And despite that fact, the prophets of Israel all speak with one unified voice. They all predict the exact same thing to a man. The prophets of the Old Testament all predict a time when God is going to reunite the 12 tribes, both houses, ruled over by David's greater son from Jerusalem, and the Gentile nations are all going to flow to it. And that is where we're going to pick up next week, because next week we're going to see prophecies, not only multiple prophecies, but prophecies of the regathering of Israel and the establishment of Christ for everything he's meant to be here on planet Earth. Right now, He's sort of easy to ignore. Right now, people take him for granted. Right now, people speak his name like a cuss word. It's not always going to be that way. At some point, he is going to sit on planet Earth as king of kings and lord of lords. And that's what all the prophets say is coming. But as part and parcel of that promise of dominion and rulership, there is also a kingdom. And that kingdom belongs to Israel because of the unconditional promises made to Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, to Ephraim and to Judah, and then finally to King David. So there is going to be, there has to be, there's going to be. History of the world is not over yet. It's still moving forward and there is a kingdom to come. Christ is going to sit on his glorious throne and we all get to be part of that kingdom. So really, when we talk about the benefits of Christianity, which we've been talking about now for longer than Kellen can remember, <laughs> the benefits of Christianity culminate in we get to be part of the glorious kingdom to come that wasn't even ours by right of inheritance. And yet, we're going to see Christ in his glory in heaven. That glory is going to be on earth, and it says that the praise, the worship, the glory of God is going to cover the earth the way the waters cover the earth. That sounds like a good day. That sounds like something I want to be part of, especially in this world as crazy as it is right now. But I want you to understand why we're taking these weeks and talking about kingdom. Ultimately, it's about our benefits as Christians because we get to be in the kingdom to come. Which is why Jesus said, when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grab a hymnal. Turn to hymn number 61. This song kind of encapsulates what I was saying here at the end of this sermon. This is all about the unconditional, unending, ongoing, deep, deep love of Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.